Well, it's a privilege to be here uh, this morning and to have the privilege to explicate uh, God's Word. I bring greetings from Hector Ortega uh, from uh, uh, El Fuerte, Mexico, where we just came from, uh, to be here in a weekend of ministry uh, with, with you. I am thankful that you have adopted Hector and are supporting him. I'm very grateful for that. Uh, we are amazed at the progress in just three months that they've been on deck there in El Fuerte. Uh, amazing things uh, have happened, and we got to experience this uh, this past week. God has provided uh, a number of pockets of believers, then some pastors we've been introduced to who, who have uh, like-mindedness in expository ministry. Uh, so God is doing a work in El Fuerte, really from Las Mochas to El Fuerte and a bunch of pueblos in between. God is at work there in Mexico, and you have adopted and prayed for and support uh, Hector and his family. And I, I just want to say thank you, and I bring greetings from Hector to you. We are just so grateful for uh, your kindness and your generosity and would, and would solicit your prayers Really, as you think about them, maybe pick a day of the week, uh, a dinner or a meal time with your family, and just pray for, for that ministry, that it would flourish, and the power of God's Word would go forth, and we'll keep you updated as God does uh, amazing things uh, through Hector and his family and other folks that are serving on deck there in El Fuerte. God is also at work in the San Joaquin Valley, and I'm extremely grateful for that. Um, to borrow Paul's words in First Thessalonica, uh, since the first day, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from this church, and I'm extremely grateful for that. I'm, I'm really proud of you. Uh, you have remained uh, faithful. You have been steadfast in hope as you've uh, built this church and as Christ has built his church. Your per- perseverance in building a healthy church, that's what I love about this church is its health right? And so I'm grateful for that. And it's been really, it really has been a joy and a privilege uh, to serve in just a small way of this body as this church has developed and really from a distance watch it mature and grow and get healthier and healthier and healthier. And I, I, it just is a joy. Sometimes we, we pray uh, at dinner for you and we think about this ministry and we're just washed over with joy and uh, gratitude. So, bravo, continue the good work in building a healthy church. Thank you, Scott, for the privilege of standing behind this sacred desk. I take it very seriously. I love God's Word. I love to explicate God's Word. So, uh, this is quite, quite, a, quite a treat and quite an honor here. And then to have me right after John MacArthur, I'm not so sure I'm grateful for that. So, there's probably some comparison that might happen, but we'll try to set aside that comparison and point our hearts to the Word of God uh, this morning. We have the privilege of looking at Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, the church of Ephesus, and I put a banner over this text and entitled it in your bulletin, First Love. First Love. We've got some work to do in this particular text because I know we're parachuting in this morning. You've not been in a series in the book of Revelation. And so I need to give you some context and to give you some setup to this text to kind of go from black and white to color and and to to animate this text. We've got to appreciate um, its context as we study together. Where the church uh, flourishes, the gospel flourishes, right? 
where the church flourishes, the gospel flourishes. We also know, to borrow from Mark Dever, there are no perfect churches, but among the imperfect, there are healthy ones. What we are striving for here in Kingsburg and what I'm striving for there in Louisville to plant another healthy church and expression of the gospel. And to this end, we labor and we strive. Well, in this particular text, the Apostle John uh, gives us a stiff reminder, a stiff reminder that it's possible for us to be doctrinally accurate, to appreciate and to value precision but be deficient in love. It's possible to be precise and accurate, and we would want to be precise and accurate. That is the right thing to do. But then, at the same time, be deficient in love. To be precise but cold. To be precise but dull. To promote duty, but not equally promote delight. Anytime we reverse the biblical order, the biblical order is delight in the Lord and then duty follows. Anytime you reverse that order and you put duty first and delight second, things get jammed up. Things go awry. So we need to be careful not to reverse the biblical order. What happens when you put duty before delight in the gospel is you begin to go through the emotions. You have to always remember as a church that before the Great Commission, there was the Great Commandment to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and body. The Apostle Paul and the Apostle John had a singular fear. Let me read the Apostle Paul's singular fear in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3. He said this, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. He was fearful that we would move away from simplicity and purity of devotion, being head over heels in love with Christ. John, in shorthand, in the text we're about to read, says, you've left your first love. You've you've abandoned your first love. This is concerning. This is dangerous for the church of Ephesus. Likewise, it's dangerous for us this morning. Ah, the year is AD 95. The church of Ephesus has remained strong, healthy for 40 years But then in this text, something's changed. As we move into the last book in the canon, something has happened. They had reversed the biblical order. They began to prioritize duty over delight. The wheels started to come off. And so John had to send them a letter to appeal to them to not lose their first love. Let's read the text. Let's get it in our minds, and then we'll get busy this morning. Revelation 2, 1 to 7, John writes to the angel or to the pastor of the church of Ephesus, write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, 
And the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds, your toil, and your perseverance, and that you can't even tolerate evil men. You even put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. You have perseverance and have endured for my namesake. And amazingly, you have not grown weary. But, but I have this one thing against you. That you have abandoned your first love. Therefore, remember from whence you have fallen. And repent. And then do the deeds that you did at first. Or else, I am coming to you. And will remove your lampstand out of its place. Unless you repent. Yet this you do have. That you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Which I also hate. He who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. Including us this morning. To him who overcomes. I will grant to eat of the tree of life. Which is in the paradise of God. How do we recapture our first love? If we've actually lost it or if we're at that precipice of losing our first love, how do we regain? How do we recapture that first love? This is what Revelation 2, 1 to 7 teaches us this morning. Again, a little bit more context is in order. Just to appreciate, because we're parachuting in, just to appreciate the fullness and the richness of this text. AD 52, the church was planted there in Ephesus by the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey. In AD 57, he had given them a farewell address just off the coast in Miletus, which is captured in Acts chapter 20. In AD 62, a decade later, Paul wrote to them the epistle to the Ephesians. And in that 10-year span, they had some stellar, I mean stellar leadership. Look at, listen to the lineup. Paul, who founded it, spent the most amount of time on his missionary journeys in Ephesus. Timothy, young Timothy, Aquila, Priscilla, Apollos. I mean, it's quite a cast of evangelicals that were ministering there in Ephesus. In AD 66, in AD 66 the apostle John arrives in Ephesus. His responsibility is not only the church of Ephesus, but to work through Asia Minor, which is now modern Turkey, to work through all seven churches in a clockwise manner and to care for them and to provide leadership to them beginning in A.D. 66. At the time of this writing, the letter that's before us this morning for our consideration, it is A.D. 95. The apostle John has been banned to an island called Patmos. It would be like a first century concentration camp. Hard duty, hard place. Difficult, difficult times. Under the tyranny of Domitian's reign, he is sentenced because he won't stop talking about Jesus. And so the only way to silence him is to put him in hard labor, making little rocks out of big rocks on the island there in Patmos. So 40 years, when we arrive here in Revelation chapter 2, 40 years has passed since their inception. 
And something's happened. They had begun to wilt. They had gotten dull. They had left their first love. They moved from health to unhealthy. From doctrinal precision to lovelessness. It's a problem, folks. It's a real, genuine problem. And interesting enough, we'll see it as we wrap the text up. By A.D. 263, they are non-existent. They lost their lampstand. So they existed for about a quarter of a century. So many strengths, though. You, you heard me read it in the text. So many strengths are pointed out. But they have this one debilitating weakness. Their Achilles heel. They struggled with love. Not precision, not accuracy, not soundness of doctrine, but love. As we approach our text this morning, our, the one that's before us to study, John has had a visit from Jesus in chapter 1. It was profound. It was a Sunday morning. He's busy breaking up rocks and he turns around. And the Alpha and Omega gives him the book of Revelation. He says, write it down. You can read chapter 1 on your own. But it was a game changer. It's one of the high Christological points in the text of Scripture. Revelation chapter 1 is fascinating. It's deep. It's rich. It's unbelievable. Jesus tells him to write the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and end times. And he begins in, in, in chapter 1, verse 17, speaking, and doesn't stop until chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 4. And so he says in chapter 2, verse 1 and following, that I, I'm going to write to those seven churches I have leadership over. I'm going to write through the Apostle John to these seven churches a message. And so he draws attention to the seven churches. These were seven actual churches. They existed. They were real churches. But they're also representative in, of all churches in every single age. Really, in my mind, they're like seven mirrors that you can look into and learn how to continue to be a healthy church, right? This, this is what they do. They are seven profound lessons to the church. We're just looking at the church of Ephesus. We could look at Smyrna. We could look at Pergamum. But this morning, we're, our consideration is, what was the message to the church of Ephesus? So picture for a moment the back doors swing open. A messenger comes in and says, I have a message for Grace Church of the Valley, Kingsburg. And he walks up and Scott's in the pulpit and he stops, he pauses, and he begins to read this letter out loud. This is what actually happened. This is what you're reading. You're eavesdropping on a letter from Jesus, the King of Glory, to the church of Ephesus. And it's a lesson for every church who desires to be healthy and to be effective in their community. It is a profound letter. And so this morning, I want us to look at really five unforgettable truths and lessons from the church of Ephesus as found in A.D. 95. Lesson number one. Lesson number one. Don't be afraid to plant churches in hard places. Don't be afraid to plant churches in hard places. Look at the text. To the pastor of the church in Ephesus. The darker it gets, 
the brighter the light of the gospel shines, right? We know from Matthew 5 that we're called to be salt and we're called to be light. We're to preserve the truth and we're to push back the darkness. Well, oh man, Ephesus was a crazy city. It was out of control. And so when he says, I'm writing to the church of Ephesus, they would have thought, whoa, that is a crazy place to have a church. Who plants a church at the gates of hell itself, right? Ephesus was a crazy city. It was kind of like New York City today, kind of wild and and crazy. It was no hick town, population of about 300,000. It was the greatest city of Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey. It was a center of commerce. It was called the gateway to Asia. Politically, it was a free city. It means that they were free from Rome's direct oversight, but they could participate in all the the fringe benefits that Rome offered. So they were loyal to Rome, but not always submitting to Rome on all issues. But here's what's most important about Ephesus. It was home to one of the seven wonders of the world. The Temple of Artemis or the Temple of Diana. It was a hotbed for, for idol worship. It was the seed of idol worship. It was a massive temple overshadowing the city. 425 feet long, 265 feet wide. It had a threefold mission and none of it was holy, right, or good. It was a museum of fine arts. Second, it was a sanctuary for political asylum or political criminals. It was a center, most of all, for pagan worship. They had 1,000 prostitutes there. They honored and worshipped the goddess Diana, and she was hideous. She was squatty and ugly, and she was the god of fertility. It was a hot mess there in Ephesus. It was, a, it was literally a cesspool of iniquity. It was crazy times. Criminals were protected. Sin ran wild. Idolatry encouraged. But you know what I love, folks? God planted a church there in Ephesus. Right in the heart of all the cesspool of iniquity. Right at the gates of hell itself, he plants a church there. Messy with a capital M. But that's where he went. That's where the church was planted by the Apostle Paul. Where sin abounds, church planting abounds still more. I love it. I love what he did. I mean, this church had experienced so much. I mean, so many different features and letters were dispatched from there. The book of Revelation, the, all, all kinds of... First, second, third John, the, the gospel of John. I mean, they had so much. I think it's personally a brilliant strategy. Sometimes when we're planting churches and thinking about expanding ministry, we go to soft places or easy places where it'd be a layup, right? Or a soft pitch. Not the Apostle Paul. Not the church of Ephesus. This was tough times. It was dark. It was hard duty. But it's where the light of the gospel shined brightest. Just like what we are doing together in El Fuerte. There's some darkness. There's real darkness there. But as we plant a stake in the ground for the gospel, the darkness flees. It's crazy. 
but it's a perfect place to plant a church. Never forget, as you read that opening line, to the pastor of the church of Ephesus, it meant something. It was hard duty. Secondly, second, truth and lesson. Jesus audits his church always with perfect discernment. Perfect discernment. You see, Jesus is the one who loves and holds his church accountable. He is the one who is always on location. He is always ever-present, our ever-present guest this morning in worship, even today, even as we gather right now. And the second part of verse 1, to the one, which is Jesus, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He's always auditing our hearts. He's always auditing our churches. He is the ever-present guest. And folks, he never misses a thing. It's perfect intelligence. He's omniscient. And so in there in verse 2b, he establishes his authority both over the pastor's and the church, and the authority as one who can speak into the ministry. In other words, they received a letter, and they might be thinking, well, who writes us a letter? They're not a part of our church. They don't know who we are. Oh, no, this is the Lord Jesus talking about the church of Ephesus. We're eavesdropping on his letter to them so that we might learn, right? And he reminds us of his divine accountability. It says he holds the seven pastors in his right hand. It means to grip Tightly. It's a death grip. He holds the under shepherds. He holds the pastors. He holds the men of God who stand behind the sacred desk. He holds them accountable. You do also, but certainly he first. It's necessary accountability. It's also a comfort. Think about where John is. He's on the island of Patmos. He's being persecuted. He's suffering. So when he would have even written this down, he's probably thinking, well, that is comforting. Not only is it accountability, but it's also, there's an edge to it, and a side to it, which is comfort. And then he says he walks among the church or churches. He has unfettered access to this church and to every church in California. And he makes assessment, and he evaluates, and he audits with perfect discernment. To borrow David's language, right? Where can I go from his presence? Nowhere. He's always here. He's here this morning. That's why when we gather to worship, it's a unique and special opportunity that you can't get on the internet. That you can't fully appreciate the the sermon experience and, and the working of the Word of God and how the Spirit of God uses the Word of God. And it's all coming together in this very moment. And he walks among the seven golden lampstands and our churches even today. I love the local church. You love the local church, but you need to be reminded that he is present. Both pastor and people should be aware of his presence as we gather to worship, that every part of it is serious, that we prepare ourselves for worship. He knows us through and through. It is an intense audit, folks. You see, you can fool the elders, and you can fool a number of people, but you can't fool Jesus. Secret sin on earth, open scandal in heaven. Secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. 
He alone can make the diagnosis of the problem. He alone can speak into this church and to every church, starting with the church there in Ephesus. There's an intense audit that happens of our hearts and of our churches every single week. Third lesson we learn. Jesus applauds their strengths. He is grateful for their effort. He is grateful for their hard work. And so much so that he, he mentions seven marks of this dutiful church that's before you this morning. So before there was nine marks of a healthy church, there were seven marks there in Ephesus of a dutiful church. I'm telling you folks, they were extraordinary. They were an extraordinary church. They were zealous, faithful, undiluted in their care with doctrine. I mean, by, by any standards, they're killing it, right? If you read verses 2 and, and, and 3, you're going, man, that is fantastic effort, fantastic ministry. It's like the few, the proud, the Ephesians, right? I mean, this is the kind of place you want to join. This is the kind of place you, you, you raise your family. This is the kind of place you plant your life and, and, and invest yourself into. But let's take a closer look, shall we? Look with me as we see these different expressions of their hard work, which he commends, by the way. Look at verse 2. I know your deeds. I know. He could have chosen a different word. He chose oida. Intense knowledge, personal, experiential knowledge. He knew through and through how hard and how careful they were. Intimate knowledge he has. I mean, they were humming. In the category of zeal and effort, they were machines. He says, I know your deeds, your, your effort, your servant-mindedness. Uh, they were zealous in their efforts. There was holy sweat coming off their brow. He says, I know your, your toil. This word in the Greek language means to work to a point of exhaustion. Most Christians' effort is... Wouldn't exhaust a butterfly, right? But not, not the church of Ephesus. Their toil, they work to the point of exhaustion. Their perseverance, he says. It means to remain up under intense persecution. So carrying a heavy load, but that they held up. They had the broad shoulders of the gospel. They, they persevered. I'm telling you, they were tough as nails. They carried heavy burdens. Broad shoulders. They were solid. I mean, it's like bravo. I mean, you guys are, <clears throat> you guys are amazing. It's, it's fantastic leadership. It's my kind of church, to be honest. It's your kind of church. Right? I mean, this is the kind of place you want to be a part of. They're going somewhere. They're doing something. They're, 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 they're pushing back darkness. They're, they're, they're after it, right? Furthermore, he says, not only are they zealous of good deeds, but they're, they're defenders of the gospel. Look, look there in, in the text. He says, and you put to test those who call themselves apostles, but they're not. And you found them to be false. Oh, they weren't gullible. Oh, no. They, uh, they tested anybody that was a self-proclaimed leader or self-proclaimed apostle. They had zero tolerance, folks. Zero tolerance for false teaching. They'd send them packing. 
Uh, they, could, they could sniff out false doctrine and smell a heretic a mile away. I mean, they, 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 they were, in essence, what he's saying, they were well taught. They knew how to handle the scriptures. The elders did. The leadership did. I mean, they could contend. If you want to talk about Titus 1.9 and contending for the faith, the church of Ephesus could contend for the faith. They were vigilant with their doctrine. They knew their Bibles, which is exactly what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 4.16 of leaders. He says you've got to pay close attention to yourself, your life, and your doctrine. Oh, they are doctrinally sound. I mean, they knew what the Scriptures taught. They were keen. They were sharp. They were well taught. We see it even in Acts 20 as Paul writes to them his kind of farewell address. He talks about how they heard the whole counsel of God, not just picking pieces and parachuting in this passage and that one and kind of wielding it. They, they were careful in how they handled the Scriptures. He goes on. Of the seven, five, six, and seven of the seven marks of a dutiful church here, you learn in the last three that they were unflinching. They were unflinching. Look at verse three. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. It's amazing. Five, six, and seven. They refused to vacillate, right? They refused to quit. They refused to throw in the towel. They endured perseverance. They endured suffering. Their leader is the apostle John. This is noteworthy. John's incarcerated. Hard time. And they remained up under that. They didn't quit. They all acquitted had been knocked out of him. They had been persecuted, but they still flourished in the gospel. They still had hope in the gospel. I'm telling you again, Look up. This is the kind of church you would join. This is the kind of church you would plant your life. This is the kind of church that you would invest in and, 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 and be generous to. This is the, the kind of church you'd go, man, I love this place here, right? You sign me up. Get out the membership role. How, how many classes do I have to take to be a part of this church? Seven. Accommodations. It's amazing. Fourth principle and lesson. Remember, there are no perfect churches, but Jesus said they had one glaring weakness. One glaring weakness. Look at verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. But strong contrast. It's abrupt it's a change. It's like slamming it. You're going 60 miles down the freeway and slamming it in reverse. That's the feel of this conjunction. It's but. You're killing it, but you need to think through. You're in a dangerous place. Just 40 years earlier, they were so healthy and so vibrant and so full of joy and reaching their community. And now this indictment. And now they're being indicted. This one thing was the main thing. And I know you're probably thinking like I'm thinking, like seven things, but just one itsy, bitsy, small one thing is enough to unravel the whole? Yep. Yep. They had abandoned their first love. Their heart for sinners grew cold. They were less generous. They were wilting. 
their zeal waned. They began to find fault in others and in leadership, right? A kind of climate of suspicion had been created. They would be eager to pursue truth and sound doctrine, but they'd set aside the affections that come with it. I'm telling you, the deeper you go in doctrine, the sweeter your devotion ought to be. It shouldn't be the other way around. If you are getting harder and harder, yet you're studying more and more, that is a problem. Right? Their love for God, their love for sinners, their love for one another. He's encompassing and leaving the first love. What's the object of their first love? It's vertical God. It's horizontal others, like Matthew 22 states, other saints. I mean, they're just having a problem. This is a mess that's going on. So much so that he says, I have this against you. It's a dangerous place. Tone change. It's Paul's great fear that you would be so precise and love sound doctrine like I love sound doctrine, but, but not the affections, not delighting in the Lord. Something was missing, and he says to the church of Ephesus, it's your love. They had grown faithful and accurate, but cold. It's a problem. Pastor Scott read it in our pastoral scripture reading and prayer, right? If you don't have love, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3, if you don't have love, what? You're a, you're a clanging symbol. What he's trying to say is you're an irritant. You're an ongoing barking dog. Because a symbol without orchestration is irritating. With everything, it's beautiful, right? But when you isolate it as a, as a single tone instrument and just start clanging cymbals, everybody's going, knock it off. That's what you're like without the love of Christ and, and, and being in love with Christ and, and maintaining and recapturing that first love. People are going to say, hey, knock it off. It's not good. They'd flip the divine order. They prized duty, but they began to go through the motions. You'll become a professional Christian. And here's what's challenging about it. That activity looks spiritual, doesn't it? The people who are busiest, we naturally equate to, man, they're walking in their integrity and they're walking in the Lord. It's not always the case, though, is it? Subtle. Dangerous. It's a drift, right? It's a stick in a stream. It starts to just float downstream. And for long, you're a quarter mile, a mile, a mile and a half from Christ, right? They had full heads, busy feet, empty hearts. Problem. They got an A in service and a D in devotion. He says, you left. He didn't leave. You left your first love. You forsake. You abandon your first love. That's the challenge. That is the problem. So seven amazing strengths of a church planted in a crazy city, yet they have one thing wrong. Let's give them a little grace is what I'm thinking. Jesus is, mm -mm. Because the one thing is the main thing. It's love for other people. It's love for Christ. It's you maintaining a, a red-hot devotion to Christ. You remember that, don't you? If you've kind of drifted a little bit, you remember when you read your Bible and it's like Jesus is sitting right beside you reading to you 
Got a cup of hot coffee, pour over. Right, 31 grams, 17, you know, the whole deal. Beautiful cup of coffee in the morning. Word of God there. It's like he's right there. You remember when the worship was just so exhilarating, you couldn't get enough. You couldn't get here early enough, right? Yeah, that, that's what he's kind of, this is what he's referencing. Fifth and final. Principle and lesson. Jesus gives them a plan to recapture their first love. Jesus gives them a plan and us a plan to recapture our first love. I love this because he doesn't leave them high and dry and say, go figure it out. Go see Brother Scott. Go see the elders. Make an appointment. Figure it out. No, no. The plan's baked into the text. Nor, listen to me, nor does he suggest for a moment that becoming theologically lax is okay. Hear me, I don't want you to be less sound or theologically lax. Hear me, I want you to be theologically robust and head over heels in love with Christ. It's both. It's not one or an exchange for the other. We don't set aside sound biblical teaching so we can enhance our our affections. It's just getting them in order. But doctrine without affection is, is just flat out dangerous. That's what he's saying to the church of Ephesus. And I think it's what he's saying to us in the sense of let's guard this. Let's fight for our first love. Let's do everything as a church and as a leadership team to to fight for first love. So in verses 5 to 7, he answers the simple question. Can I regain my first love? The answer is absolutely you can. I'm here to encourage you and to give you hope in the gospel, that yes, you can recapture your first love. So wherever the Lord and the Spirit finds you this morning, listen to me, you can recapture your first love. You need to recapture your first love. Again, this is a stiff, a stiff text in our face to say, hey, whoa, check. Look into your heart. I love it, too. Because Jesus has John write it down. Just three steps. Really helpful. Three steps practically. Look at it. Therefore, remember, first present active verb, remember from where you have fallen. Second, repent. Third, redo the deeds that you did at first. I love it. What a tool. What a helpfulness. What help is this? This is amazing. To recapture our first love. I don't know where the Lord finds you this morning. I trust many of you love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But it's possible we're stepping away. It's possible we're abandoning. It's possible we can be forsaking. And for sure, for the leadership, we always need to make sure we get the divine order right, right? We get duty and delight, and we make sure it's delight and duty and not the other. And we're careful not to emphasize. Even in our preaching, I know Scott, I know his love for the scriptures and his his love for the text. He's going to emphasize this because he loves Christ. Yeah, there's some times we need to tell you, you need to do this, this, and this, and this. When the text demands it, we tell you that. This is the text saying, whoa, love. Because if you don't have love, it doesn't matter if you can move mountains. It doesn't matter if you have all the spiritual gifts in the world. You have all 18 of them, and you're knocking it out of the park. And and it doesn't matter if you are giving your body to be burned and all of your money to the the poor. If you don't have love, you're a goose egg. Nothing. It's huge. So he says, first, remember. Remember. Like the prodigal son. Remember that little, 
that little clause in there, he came to his senses. Some of us this morning need to come to our senses. You need to remember where you jumped off, where you, where and when and, and why you jumped off, right? Take a stroll down memory lane. Where did you leave? Where, where have you let it go? Are you too busy to pray? Are you too busy to study your Bible? Are you too busy to cultivate a relationship? I don't know. But I do know this from the Apostle John and from Christ's own words. Memory is a companion to someone who believes in the sincerity and devotion to Jesus Christ. It's the handmaiden to first love. It's the handmaiden to, 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 to revival, to personal devotion. And I also know that there have been times that I've forgotten that one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Right? I think sometimes our affections wane and they go because we think that would please us more or that would bring more satisfaction or more joy. And we, we got to correct all the time. Remember, one day, just one day in the courts with Christ is better than a thousand great days in this world. He says, remember. Second, he says, repent. You know, the path home is, is simple but hard, to be honest. It can be spiritually embarrassing to admit you've been going through the motions and you're being very faithful. It's simple, repent, but hard. You gotta put away your sin. The sin of, in this case, apathy or lack of affection or anything that is a cheap substitute for true devotion to Christ, true love of Christ. He says you gotta do a 180. You gotta change, it's gotta be a change of mind that 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 actually results in a in a change of action. It's from your knees to the floor. First John 1 9 says, John himself says, if you confess your sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Is that not good news? We've got to confess our apathy. We've got to ask for forgiveness. I'm telling you, the deeper we go doctrinally, the deeper Scott takes you doctrinally, it ought to make you soft and caring and compassionate and burdened for your community. If it makes you hard and grumpy and mean and a snake, something's awry, right? We're repenters. Proverbs 6, 23 says, repentance is the way of life. James 4, 8 says, draw near to God. I promise you, folks, he'll draw near to you. One writer put it like this. We really can't go forward until we go back to the place where we stepped off the path of love and fell into the sea of religious activity. Third, remember, repent, and then he says do or for the sake of outline, redo. Look at me. It's not the deeper life you need. It's the disciplined life. Right? It's the discipline life you see seek. Paul says in Philippians 2:12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Return to the basics. The, the things that originally stirred your affections, like reading your Bible and prayer and memorizing scripture and all those things you did at the first, as the ESV says, at the first, and 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 then return. Our sound doctrine should produce biblical love. We should be happy evangelicals. 
not angry fundamentalists. Without love, we are, to echo Paul, nothing. And I'm telling you, tomorrow's coming, right? Tomorrow morning's coming. It's a new day. Lamentations 3 says the mercies of God are new every single day. Tomorrow's a new day. And I'm telling you, if you want to plant a, a healthy church in the San Joaquin Valley and be Grace Church of the Valley, it's going to take all of us getting up tomorrow morning or tomorrow afternoon or tomorrow evening, whenever you spend time with the Lord, and make sure you have your first love. You recapture that first love, that first affection. If not, trouble is coming. Trouble is coming to any church. The church that I pastor in Louisville, the church here, the church in El Fuerte, it doesn't matter. If we lose it, we're in serious trouble. Look what he says at the end of verse 5. Or else. Kind of a warning, right? Or else. Consequences. I have a teenager. I'm always saying, or else. Or else I'm coming to you and remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Interesting. So A.D. Uh, 150, um, a pastor wrote a letter to the church of Ephesus. Not a biblical letter, but just a letter. And it commended them for their affection and for their repentance and for their love. There was a line in there. It was kind of, kind of cool. It was Ignatius of Antioch that wrote the letter. But by 263, lights are out. See how fast it can go? 40 years from inception to this point here where they found themselves. It doesn't take long. It, takes, it could be in a generation. And God says, listen, I'm not guaranteeing your historical existence, your geography. If you walk away from first love, you put the church in jeopardy. And your lampstand could get blown out. It means to be eliminated, right? It's, it's coming in judgment, not second coming judgment. It's discipline is what he's talking about. I will discipline the church that doesn't see fit to put in divine order, delight in Christ, and then duty. And then he ends. He ends with an invitation here. Oh, he drops in a little parenthetical because he can't help himself. He's going to deal with the Nicolaitans, so we don't need to go into great length. He's going to, he's going to, they, 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 they resurface there in Thyatira. Uh, they're they're a, a motley crew, um, antinomian, just crazy behaviors. We don't even need to spend the time on them. You got the point. They're not going to put up with them. But then he kind of gives an invitation. I think it's an appropriate invitation for us this morning as we even walk into the Lord's table. Look at it with me, verse 7. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He's basically saying, listen and obey. This is James 1, right? Hearing and doing. He's saying, don't prize duty over delight. It's delight, then duty. Don't reverse the order. And then you'll be overcomers. It's just a synonym for a true believer. You will manifest that you are in Christ, that you overcome regardless of persecution or, or losing first love. Whatever it is, you're an overcomer. You'll manifest that you maintain that, and you will be a, an overcomer, a true believer. And then he says, oh, it will be so glorious because he's right in the last book. It, you'll experience eternal life in heaven forever. Fast forward, Revelation 22. You'll be eating of the tree of life, synonymous with, with, with possessing eternal life. Folks, it's so worth contending for your affections. It's so worth it. 
You need to fight for your affections. You need to love God. You need to love doctrine. You need to love others. Love is the big deal. It's the sin quanon of all attributes. You have to have it. You gotta love the Lord God with all your mind, soul, and strength. And you gotta love your neighbor likewise. It's huge before the great command commandment is the great commission. There's the great commandment. It's this issue of love. Paul said, pay close attention to yourself and to your doctrine, right? This is a huge issue. Suppose, for a minute, Jesus sent your family a letter. Mail comes tomorrow. What's in the letter? What's, uh, what's he going to say about your affections? What's he going to say about even your duty? Because they're crushing it in duty, right? We all, I think we can all agree to that. What would he say? What would he say to the church as a whole, to the leadership? To Just by way of application, you answer that on your own. As a family, let's talk about it at the dinner table tonight or tomorrow or this week sometime. Isolate sometime. Say, where are we? Are, are our affections in order? Do we have the divine order right kind of, of how this is supposed to work? Or have we gotten a little crazy over here? We need to correct here. We, have we forgotten? And, you know, because you, 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 you guys have been busy for 12 years. And I just put out a word of caution as the church of Ephesus. Just be careful. Because people will be attracted to your love and not your deeds. This shall all men know you are my disciples when you have what? Love for one another. If you're here this morning... And you don't know Christ and you're visiting us? We're so grateful you're here. Let me tell you about the greatest love story that's ever been told. The greatest love story ever told is this, that the king of kings courted us, lowly, sinful peasants that we are, and pursued us to become his bride. We're called the bride of Christ. And then this same bride gathers together in the church week after week after week to reacquaint and to study the bridegroom. This is the gospel. And if you'd never trusted Christ, certainly we would plead with you. We'd beg you. We would remind you of 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that he, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. The great exchange took our sin and put it on Christ and we get Christ's righteousness and placed on us in forgiveness and in repentance. This is the gospel. I would commend to you if you've never trusted the gospel. Seek somebody out. Seek myself out. Scott, the other elders, we'd love to share with you the gospel. But worship doesn't end here. Oh no. We get a privilege this morning, right? It's the Lord's table. And we get to remind ourselves, and that's exactly what the Lord's table is, right? A remembrance, a memorial about what Christ did on the cross and how he died for us. I hope and I pray that as we exit this text that it stays with you, that it lingers, and that you will always contend for affections over duty.